we've finally been approved on all podcast platforms. You can now find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So please leave us some reviews and tell your friends. And now, on to our show. In the basement of one of the country's leading medical schools, Dr. Edward Jessup, candidate for a Nobel Prize, is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science. And the subject of the experiment is himself. Ask him what kind of an experience I can expect. What happens during these blackout periods is you get the feeling of phenomenal acceleration, like you're being shot out over millions, billions of years. Time simply obliterates. You guys are shooting off with an untested drug that stacks up in the brain and works in the nucleus of the cell, and you don't call that dangerous. I'm asking you to put the experiment off until we understand a little more in order to minimize the risk. I'm really frightened. We could be screwing around with this whole genetic structure. Now, how do we stop this? We've got millions of years stored away in that computer bank we call our minds. We have got trillions of dormant genes in us, our whole evolutionary past. Perhaps I've tapped into that. He may be on to something that is beyond our own comprehension. Now, because I believe him, I want this thing stopped. The hell was that? You okay? If you love me, if you love me, Eddie, get fired! Altered States. Hey everyone, I'm Karina. And I'm Emily. And this is The Nameless Dead. So this case is an atypical one for us. There's no murder victim. And it's actually an unusual case in general, Possibly a scientific conspiracy, possibly the result of a few Harvard Medical School professors doing too many drugs. I chose this case because it had another instance of an American man being naked in the zoo. This seems to happen more often than you would like to think. Apparently, it does. It's just like the mad dog in the Piccadilly Circus. It was a typical quiet Friday night on April 16, 1976, when custodial worker Hector Ortega was in the middle of his shift in Building B of the Harvard Medical School. Around 9.30 p.m., Hector was resting in his office when he heard a strange noise. He went to the observation space for the sensory deprivation tank room. Now, I'm sure most of you have seen Stranger Things. A sensory deprivation tank is a coffin-like chamber devoid of light or noise pollution filled with approximately three feet of water mixed with 10% magnesium sulfate and kept exactly at 93 degrees. Honestly, it sounds like a dream. Used for relaxation, dreaming, and healing, 
but the experience has been known to cause hallucinations in its users. This room had been restored and used by a professor by the name of Dr. Eddie Jessup for the past few months. Hector walked into the observation room to find the EKG reader spilling out readings on the floor and a full set of limp, abandoned clothes on one of the office chairs. Yeah, that would be my cue to leave immediately. But he didn't. He opened the heavy door to the isolation tank room and was immediately pushed backwards down the stairs by a monkey-like creature. Hector, no! Security is not part of your job description, man. Shaken and confused, Hector ran to Sergeant Jorge Obispo in the security office, frantically explaining that there was an animal loose in the building. Sergeant Obispo called Charlie Thomas and Lou Mingus, two other security guards from nearby buildings for backup, before he and Hector were able to chase the creature into the boiler room. There, the creature, who proved to be quite athletic, had the upper hand. Hiding in the pipes in the ceiling, swinging down to attack the two men, the creature severely bludgeoned both Hector and Jorge before backup was able to arrive. Once Charlie and Lou did arrive, they opened the door just to accidentally let the creature escape into the night. They had one job. At around 2 a.m. the following morning, a security guard at Van Buren Park Zoo heard a commotion in the section of the park known as the African Plains. When he entered the electric fence enclosure, he found the remains of a torn apart and eaten Thompson's gazelle near a naked, face down, and unconscious Dr. Jessup. That's going to be hard to explain. Dr. Eddie Jessup is who fixed up the deprivation tank, right? Right. Eddie was awakened and taken to the zoo security office and then later booked at the Van Buren Park Police Station where he was bailed out by his wife and fellow scientist, Emily Jessup. Okay, so did Eddie being passed out in the zoo have something to do with the animal at his office? In order to answer that question, we need to understand a bit more about Dr. Eddie Jessup and his area of study. Eddie Jessup's story starts when he was just nine years old, the son of an aeronautical engineer and a clinical psychologist growing up in South Yonkers. While his parents weren't particularly religious, Eddie became famous for seeing visions of Christ. Ooh, red flag much? And not just seeing. A small Pentecostal church made him famous as he spoke in tongues and described elaborate visions of angels and saints. Eddie's parents, naturally concerned about their son's mental health, took him to see a number of psychiatrists in Westchester County. But the visions didn't subside until the death of Eddie's father in 1955 when Eddie was 16 years old. Red flag! Adult Eddie received his doctorate while studying under Dr. Gregory Hayworth, who was doing studies in human isolation for NASA, which was Eddie's first introduction to isolation tanks. From there, he dabbled in LSD hallucinogenic studies, then met Dr. Arthur Rosenberg when he worked on the study searching for physiological differences between diagnosed schizophrenics and neurotypical people. It was at a party at Arthur's apartment where Eddie met Emily, a physical anthropologist postgrad studying comparative cranial capacities of hominoids and primates. So how are human and primate brains similar? Is your head spinning yet? So... Eddie studied isolation, then hallucination, and schizophrenia, and then he met Emily, who studied primates. Right. I promise this is important in the larger story. In fact, many people believe that 
Eddie never actually stopped having the hallucinations from his childhood. He just changed his focus from God to his wife. Oh, boy, that sounds healthy. Yeah, he indulges in a lot of healthy behaviors. Ooh. The couple married, had two daughters, and moved to Boston so both parents could teach at Harvard. It didn't take long before Eddie became dissatisfied with his comfortable domestic life. He began to travel to engage in different cultural hallucination rituals, uh, meditation, spiritual rituals, stuff like that. Apparently, he wanted to go off into the desert like St. Anthony to find God. He and Emily separated just before Eddie traveled to Zapotecas, Mexico, to engage in what he heard was a communal hallucination led by Inchi natives. Inchi natives, what do we know about them? According to Eddie's notes, they're descendants of the Chichimec Toltecs, but outside of references to this case, I can't find much information about them at all. Eddie participates in a hallucinogenic mushroom ritual with these people, and while I realize that this supposedly took place in 1975, I'm starting to wonder if consuming an herb or root with properties from natives has become a modern shorthand for we don't really know what happened here. Like, there were those PhD students in Sweden, the librarian in Derry, Maine, or those backpackers in Brazil. What I'm saying is I'm not entirely convinced that the ancient natives even exist. Yes, it is very suspicious that there is no mention of them outside of his notes. And why would he make up an entire tribe of people? Yeah, like this part of the story comes entirely from Eddie's notes, which we have to view with some skepticism, especially later as they start to unravel and he begins to black out for periods of time. He did travel with a visiting Harvard professor named Dr. Echevera, but it doesn't seem like he took any notes from his trip, or at least not notes that are available to us now. It's 2019, and there's no undiscovered tribes anymore. Maybe in 1975 when this all took place, but if there's no scientific writings on these people in the 35 years since, it's safer to assume they don't exist. But according to the information we have, Eddie took a drug with Sinecuchi, or Hemosalisfolia, which is a yellow flower, and Amanita muscaria, which is the red and white magic mushroom that we see all over pop culture. His hope was to find a prenatal recall or prior consciousness of when man's brain first transitioned from an ape to what we would consider human. So like his wife's research. Right. According to the Brujo assisting Eddie in this process, you will be sick, then you will shoot into void, you will see a spot, the spot will become a streak, this is the crack between the nothing, out of this nothing will come your unborn soul. How would this Brujo know what a random white dude would hallucinate? Eddie's main fascination with this mixture was that it's supposed to result in the same hallucination for every person who takes it. Eddie's notes on his experience lose coherence fast, but as far as we know, he was pleased with the experience. I bet he was. So pleased, in fact, that he asked for a large quantity of this concoction to take back to Boston with him.
He also tore apart and ate a Komodo dragon while hallucinating. What? No, not a poor Komodo dragon. And, okay, did he cook it, at least? If not, how is he alive? Because they are riddled with bacteria. Maybe he was really hardy. Or just lucky. He just took lots of probiotics. He just took lots of probiotics. Yeah, he actually doesn't even remember doing it. Um, but there was proof, if you will. Ugh, gruesome, gruesome proof. So Eddie brings this concoction back to Harvard, restores the isolation tank room at the school, and begins doing hallucination-induced experiments on himself with Dr. Arthur Rosenberg from New York and Dr. Mason Parrish, another Harvard professor studying schizophrenia, as his cohorts. The ritual went like this. With Arthur and Mason in the observation room, Eddie would undress and ingest 200 milliliters of the substance. He would then wait for 20 minutes with a basin in hand to throw up, then he would climb into the isolation tank and begin hallucinating. Just all of this. Freaking 70s, man. This is at an institute of higher education. These are Harvard professors. Harvard. Arthur would be monitoring his EKG, and they recorded his narration of his trip. The session would typically last around four hours. So the sessions got progressively weirder and even went beyond Eddie waking up naked in the zoo. And yeah... He probably ate that gazelle just like he did the kimono dragon. Say it ain't so. You think you're safe in a zoo, you know? You think you are. Fences. They just... <laughs> Feeding times. No predators. And mm. then a naked American man jumps into the zoo in the middle of the night. An increasingly potent predator, it would seem. In one instance, Eddie came out of the isolation chamber in shock with his mouth full of blood... He insisted on a blood test, photos, and an x-ray before he reconstituted. He was convinced his hallucination had changed him physically. So his fellow professors, his colleagues, never followed or filmed him to be like, hey, dude, whoa, slow your roll. You're eating gazelle right now. So at this point, I guess in the story, he hasn't done anything as extreme as that. He's just in the isolation tank, not leaving coming out maybe with his mouth full of blood. The most likely explanation, which was actually Mason's explanation, actually, was that he had experienced a seizure while he was in the tank and bit his lip. Okay, I'll buy that. You see, Eddie was convinced that the hallucinations were causing a physical change in him. He was convinced he was actually turning into a proto-human during these hallucinations and that the regression was triggered by a foreign consciousness. A foreign consciousness, like someone else was in his brain? Sort of. He believed he was tapping into the unused memories and genes that store the entire history of human evolution that he believed that all of us have. Yeah, sure. Okay. The closest analogy I can think of would be he believed he was accessing past reincarnation lives. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite there with you, but I'll keep following along. Well, nobody's where Eddie is, for the record. True. He started having drug flashbacks outside of the isolation tank and these four-hour sessions. He woke up in the middle of the night one night, witnessing his cells actively changing his body into an ape-like creature. Certain he was making never-before-seen scientific breakthroughs, he submitted the details of these experiences to the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. 
Meanwhile, Arthur and Mason were concerned about his health, both mentally and physically. Arthur wrote to Emily, who was studying baboons in Africa, that Eddie refused to see a doctor, but he was concerned about leukemia or lymphoma from the large amounts of the drug that Eddie had been taking. He also wrote that Eddie had been acting strangely and was likely on the verge of a mental breakdown. Emily and her daughters returned to Boston just in time to bail Eddie out of jail for passing out naked in the zoo. While you can guess what Eddie's explanation for the incident was... I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be able to guess. He thought he had uh, developed physically into a proto-human and had attacked Hector and Jorge and gone to the zoo and eaten a gazelle, which some of those certainly seem to be true. Drugs, man. The reality seemed to be he'd finally exceeded his tolerance of the concoction he had been taking and that he'd simply had a toxic delirium. So what about the ape that the janitor and security guard saw? They saw a bipedal, hairy, naked dude in the dark. It could have been Eddie. Uh, Other than that, no one has a great explanation. Some people say that it may have been a student playing a prank, possibly that Eddie even paid in order to have other witnesses to support his theory, but a student's never come forward. There's also the possibility that Hector was inadvertently drugged when he went into the isolation room and hallucinated the creature. This will come into play later in the story. Okay, and then where were Arthur and Mason when he was supposedly turning into an ape and beating people to death? He went rogue on this experiment. Like I said, his wife Emily and their two daughters had just returned to town after a year studying in Africa, and Arthur had written his concerns to Emily. She was concerned with Eddie's health and wished for him to pause these experiments. The two got into an argument, and Eddie stormed off to the lab to perform another experiment on himself, solo. So nobody knew he was there. Nobody knew where he was, period. It was probably the most dangerous way to conduct any scientific test. That's incredibly unsafe. Rather than stopping the experiments, once things were clearly going seriously wrong, Eddie insisted on continuing. Two weeks after the zoo incident, Eddie tried his experiment again, this time with Arthur, Mason, and Emily monitoring from the observation room. According to Emily and Arthur's accounts of the event, three and a half hours into the experiment, which had been decidedly uneventful, Eddie started screaming in the tank. Mason ran to the isolation tank and opened up the lid just as the tank blew up. Emily ran, screaming towards the tank, attempting to get her husband, but Mason, miraculously unharmed, grabbed her and carried her out of the room for safety. Emily hit her head on the hallway and passed out. Mason returned to the room just to find it enveloped in infrared waves of light and an intense heat which caused he and Arthur to pass out on the stairs leading to the door of the room. At an unknown point in time, Emily regained consciousness and burst into the room to find Eddie in the middle of a whirlpool of color as a massive substance attempting to assume Eddie's prior form. Uh, okay. Um, but what really happened? It's believed that there was an error in the way Eddie administered the drug, and it leaked into the air of the room, causing everyone to trip balls. They did blow up the isolation tank, somehow, but Arthur stayed behind to clean it all up. 
But I thought you said Eddie was drinking the liquid. How did it get into the air? Well, naturally, Eddie, Arthur, and Mason were experimenting with how to administer the drug uh, because they didn't believe in controls in experiments in the 70s. I hope they believe in consent. Not for mice, because they were injecting it into mice in Mason's lab and then slicing the mice's brains to find out how the drug impacts human brains. So it's not unlikely that the scientists would attempt to administer the drug via nebulizer, and that's where the flaw probably occurred. Eddie and Emily returned home and continued to hallucinate for a short while, but they rekindled their marriage and didn't end up filing for divorce. Yeah, that's some budding romance right there. After all of these events, Eddie seemed ready to settle into some variant of a typical family life that he once deemed too boring. But he was still Dr. Eddie Jessup. Soon after Eddie's isolation tank experiments came to a close, he coined a theory of the existence of certain hierarchical groups of aliens that were not necessarily physical entities, but transdimensional spirits with an interest in human activities. <laughs> okay, we're going to aliens now. All right, all right. I'm not saying it's aliens. But it's aliens. With the Earth Coincidence Control Office, or ECHO, aliens use their powers to alter events on Earth, specifically through carefully crafted coincidences, to guide some human beings toward higher levels of consciousness. ECHO, of course, has a nefarious counterpart called Solid State Entity, or C, whose goal is to limit human consciousness to eventually eliminate the human race. C is made up of network computer parts whose only objective is to multiply and make copies of itself. To this end, it has targeted humanity, trying to influence us into creating ever more complex social and mechanical structures that will one day result in an artificial superintelligence. Okay. The internet, right? Yeah. Eddie Jessup passed away due to heart failure at age 86 in Los Angeles on September 30th, 2001. Though Eddie Jessup has lost popularity and notoriety since his passing, he is still viewed today as a polarizing figure, with his followers either loving him or loving to hate him. Emily Jessup only lived a few short years after the incidents taking place in this case. She passed away from bone cancer on January 28, 1986. Is there any possibility that Eddie was actually turning into an ape? Well, it's not something we've seen since, even with Jessup's notes and publications made available. And, you know, in the scientific community, if you can't reproduce your findings, it's safer to assume that they didn't happen the way that you say. But what we have seen reproduced is people having crazy or much crazier trips while on hallucinogens. Okay, so what happened to Hector and Jorge, the guys who got beat up in Harvard Medical School? Within a few months, they were both able to make a full recovery. Uh, Harvard Medical School did them a favor by transferring them to different parts of the university so they didn't have to relive whatever happened to them on that night in 1976. They seem to have gone on to live perfectly normal lives. Can we talk more about Eddie transitioning his hallucinations from Jesus to his wife, Emily? So it's suspected that Eddie Jessup had some form of schizophrenia, though not so severe that it interrupted his day-to-day -day life, except in some obvious cases. This would explain the religious visions of his youth, uh, his study of the disorder, and perhaps some of the, his behaviors during this study. 
It's a bad idea to mix hallucinogens with schizophrenia, especially the wide variety of hallucinogens he was using and untested unknown drugs. When Eddie met Emily, it was a whirlwind romance, and the two were married in less than a year after they met. Despite Eddie being a hot and cold partner, he was clearly very much in love with Emily. And if you notice, his focus in this crazy study, when primate brains evolved into human brains, was very similar to what Emily studied before they even met. It seems as though he took her ideas, morphed them into his own, and started hallucinating about them, all in response to his obsession with her. He still told himself he was trying to find God, but he was actually trying to find what Emily wanted. Okay, so if Eddie did make up the Inchi tribe, where did he get this concoction from? Any number of places. Uh, Maybe he made up the tribe to save face because he got high and didn't remember where he obtained the drug, or he got it through the cartel, or... Maybe he was given it, given it by a tribe of people, but he got everything about them wrong. There's just so many possibilities, and it happens so often in so many different cases that I find it hard to believe that it's not just something Americans are just making up out of racism. Yeah, racism. Yup. This episode was written and hosted by Karina McKeon, with co-hosting by Emily Shirley. Script punch-up was done by Katie Jeffries. Our producer is Derek Adams, and editing, sound, and music design was done by Ian Ennis. I want this thing stopped!